Shri Shri Radha Krishna Gopina Shai Mukunda Radha Kunda Gidi Govardhan Ki Jai Vrindavan Dhamma Ki Jai Mathura Dhamma Ki Jai Nabhadweep Mayapur Dhamma Ki Jai Jagannath Puri Dhamma Ki Jai Gangamaya Jamuna Devi Ki Jai Bhakti Devi Ki Jai Tulsi Maharani Ki Jai Samaveta Bhakta Vrinda Ki Jai Gaur Premanande all glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Garanga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada Nama Om Vishnu Padaya. Krishna Prastaya Bhutale Sri Mate Bhakti Vedanta Swami Niti Namane. Namaste Saraswati Deve Goravani Pacharni Nivasesasa Nivadi Paskatyade Satarani. Vande Ham Shri Guru Shri Uta Padakamalam Shri Gurun Vaishnavamscha Shri Rupam Sagraja Tam Sagana Raganatam Vitam Tam Sajivam Sadvoitam Sadvadutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Vitamscha Vanchakalpachupascha Kipasindaviyavata Patitanam Pavanavya Vaishnavayapinavamaha Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya May 12, 2021, Hawaii over the internet, reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 4, Chapter 25, the descriptions of the characteristics of King Paranjana, Text 35. Ete Sakaya Sakyome. Nara Naryas Chamanada. Suktayam mai jagarti Nagoyam palayam purim All these Sakayaha Male friends Sakyaha Female associates. Female associates. May. May. My. My. Naraha. Naraha. Men. Men. Naryaha. Naryaha. Women. Women. Cha. Cha. And. And. Manada. Manada. Oh, very respectful one. Suptayam. Suptayam. While sleeping. While sleeping. Jagarti. Jagarti. Keeps awake. 
keeps awake. Nagaha. Snake. Snake. I am. This. This. Palayam. Protecting. Protecting. Purim. This city. Shila Prabhupada's translation. My dear gentlemen, all these men and women with me are known as my friends. And the snake, who always remains awake, protects this city even during my sleeping hours. So much I know. I do not know anything beyond this. Okay, now it's interesting that the last two sentences are not in the Sanskrit. Shila Prabhupada's purport. Paranjana inquired from the woman about those eleven men and their wives and the snake. The woman gave a brief description of them. She was obviously without full knowledge of her surrounding men and women in the snake. As stated before, the snake is the vital force of the living being. This vital force always remains awake, even when the body and senses become fatigued and do no work. Even in the state of unconsciousness, when we sleep, the snake or the life force remains intact and awake. Consequently, we dream when we sleep. When the living entity gives up this material body, the vital force still remains intact and is carried to another material body. That is called transmigration or change of the body, and we have come to know this process as death. Actually, there is no death. The vital force always exists with the soul, and when the soul is awakened from deep sleep, the soul is awakened from so-called sleep, he can see his eleven friends or the active senses in the mind with their various desires or wives. The vital life force remains. Even during our sleeping hours, we can understand by virtue of our breathing process that the snake lives by eating the air that passes through within the body. Air is exhibited in the form of breathing, and as long as breath is there, one can understand that a sleeping man is alive. Even when the gross body is asleep, the vital force remains active and alive to protect the body. Thus, the snake is described as living and eating air to keep the body fit for life. Ete sakaya sakyome nara narash chamanada suktayam mai jagati nagoyam palayam purim. My dear gentlemen, all these men and women with me are known as my friends. And the snake, who always remains awake, protects this city, even during my sleeping hours. And then Prabhupada's addition here that he puts in the translation, so much I know, I do not know anything beyond this. So our city is protected, our Purim, our city of nine gates, is being protected by this snake, uh, the life force. Uh, so Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur in his Tika on this verse says the male friends are the senses the female attendants are the actions of the senses and the snake is the prana which Prabhupada is saying here eats the air <laughs> and Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur says the prana is always awake he says when we're dreaming the senses are inactive but the mind and intelligence are active. And when we're in deep sleep, the senses, mind, and intelligence are inactive. But the prana is always active. So this prana is protecting the body and the mind, even when the bodily senses 
are inactive, and even when the mind is inactive, we have to sleep to repair the body, and we have to sleep to repair the mind. The vast majority of our sleeping hours are are spent repairing the mind. So we sleep for that purpose, but the uh, snake of the prana keeps the soul within the body and protects the body and the mind. So we're all in need of protection. Anyone who says they're not in need of protection is a fool. The body is very fragile. All it takes, you just, you know, trip (laughs) and fall down some stairs and you break parts of the body. A friend of mine just got in a little scooter accident and her eye is swollen, her hand is swollen, her head is damaged. It's a little thing, you know, it doesn't take much to really harm the body. You're cooking and you can cut yourself and bleeding, bleeding. I broke my toe once just sweeping the floor and hitting my toe hard. I was sweeping the floor with a little too much enthusiasm. And I hit my toe against a metal chair leg and broke my toe. So the body is very fragile. When I was a child, I broke my arm walking the dog, (laughs) my father's dog. So the dog ran ahead of me, was pulling me. I was just a child. I couldn't control this dog, supposedly trained. And then it stopped in front of me. After pulling me very fast, it stopped in front of me, and I couldn't stop my momentum. I fell over the dog on my left arm and broke my arm. And then I couldn't get up. My arm was broken. I couldn't use my arm to get me up, and I couldn't use my right arm because I was holding the dog. I had to wait on the street for two hours until some other, the older students got off of their school bus and came and helped me. So our bodies are very fragile. Right? We can, uh, our bodies can get injured very easily. Our bodies can get sick very easily. We have this global pandemic, this tiny microscopic virus, and it's killing people. It's making people very sick. Right? It's just this teeny, tiny, tiny little virus, and we breathe it in, and, and our bodies don't know what to do with it, and they get sick. So our bodies are very fragile. We can die very easily. One speck of potent poison like cyanide, and we're, our bodies are dead. <laughs> you know, it, does, it doesn't take much. And we have an awareness all the time that we're in these very fragile bodies. I think this body is like, it's like a piece of glass, practically. <laughs> I remember when I was in Hawaii, I had a... I, the devotees there would sell this this drink from coconut milk and ginger and turmeric and honey. It was nice. Or cane sugar, they use honey. Really, really nice drink. And uh, they would sell it in glass bottles. <laughs> One day, the glass bottle broke. And I had this coconut milk and turmeric all over my floor and all these pieces of glass. So the body is like that. It's like some glass bottle. It breaks very easily. And I become aware... I don't know, recently I just really noticed that the mind is also fragile. There's someone I know, a nice lady, very nice lady, and uh, she was attending some of my classes, and somehow her mind snapped. She had some kind of a psychotic break, and she's become mentally unstable. You know, it was very, it was kind of scary, you know saw her here, she has this gorgeous long hair and it was, she always took nice care of herself, 
well-groomed person. And her hair was all a big ball of mattedness. And she was speaking uh, very, pecu- very peculiarly. And I was thinking, you know, like two months ago she was a normal person and now she's not. And how did that happen? You know, we would try to analyze how it happened, what, what sparked it. But ultimately the mind is also very fragile. And of course an uh, injury to the body can affect the workings of the mind. My late sister-in-law uh, fell down the stairs in a, in a friend's house. She wasn't familiar with the layout of the house. And she knocked her head, and after that she had memory problems and a difficulty thinking and so forth well, for the rest of her life. So the, a little, you know, disease. I was reading one of my friends who had COVID. She said she still can't think clearly. Her brain is all foggy. With mental illness, I remember meeting a devotee in another part of the world who was completely sane and stable and all of a sudden in his 30s became mentally ill. So the mind is also very fragile. I mean, we, in, even in everyday life, some things can upset us so much that we can't focus our mind on anything. Our mind is so absorbed in this difficulty. And so therefore we need protection. And interestingly, spiritually, I mean, the soul can't be hurt by anything. Uh, however, the material nature, the material nature is very strong. The modes of nature, they're Krishna's energy. And Prabhupada said he was always praying not to fall into maya. Now we can also say that even though the soul in one sense is infallible, the soul in one sense is not really vulnerable. Uh, just because we're very small, we're the tatasta shakti. Uh, in another sense, we are vulnerable. In another sense, we're, we're very powerful as a soul. We're, we're greatly powerful. Uh, eternally powerful beings that in one sense, we can't, we can't be hurt by any of the things that hurt the body and the mind. But we can become bewildered so we forget Krishna. That is possible. And, and all of us conditioned souls are the evidence of that. So we need some sort of protection. Now, I hear it's described how the body and the mind are being protected by the prana and how the prana is eating air. And I was thinking that uh, on the one hand, this is, it's a, you know, Prabhupada's giving this description, the Bhagavatam giving is this, this, this is giving this description. So on the one hand, we can say this, it's a fact. The life heirs, the prana, the living force, and the life heirs are protecting the body and protecting the mind. At its most vulnerable time, sleep is our most vulnerable time, isn't it? Because we lose awareness of our surroundings. We're even Our muscles are even somewhat paralyzed. I mean, unless you have a disorder like sleepwalking. <laughs> but our muscles get somewhat paralyzed and uh, we're not aware of our surroundings, so we're in a very vulnerable position during sleep. During dreaming sleep and during deep sleep especially, we're very, very vulnerable. This is why, you know, like in, in the military, somebody stays up to keep watch. You don't want everyone sleeping at once. Yeah? So we're always vulnerable, our bodies are always vulnerable, our minds are always vulnerable, but especially during sleep. So then the prana is protecting us. But of course, ultimately, we're not being protected by the prana. Ultimately, we're being protected by Krishna. 
the, the life force, the living force, the prana. Uh, this is uh, intermediary. And just like Prahlad Mara said, you know, the parents cannot save the child, the boat cannot save a drowning man. Uh, ultimately, it's only Krishna who can save. And one of the items of surrender, one of the six items of surrender, is seeing, feeling, experiencing that only Krishna is my protector. Only Krishna is my protector. So I thought I'd look at this concept of the life air, the different pranas. There's uh, several different pranas in the body uh, that's described. Prabhupada describes them briefly in the Bhagavad Gita. They're also, of course, if one studies Ayurveda, they're described. And Krishna says that he joins with this air of life. He joins with the prana to move our digestion around. Also, Arjuna says in the 11th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, you are air. And so Krishna is identified with air. Also, he says that he's the living force. So as many of you know, I've been working for many years, far too many years, on a book with Kamala Sita Devi Dasi on meditating on Krishna within the elements. Actually, right before this class, I was working with her on our, we hope, <laughs> final editing of that book. <laughs> we hope. <laughs> we thought we had done a final editing before. <laughs> but uh, hopefully this is the final, final, final editing of the book. So I thought I would, I would read some of our meditations about air and how, you know, this air of life, we can find Krishna. We, we should mention before we look at finding Krishna in our air of life, how significant our breathing and our prana is to our mental and physiological state. I mean, when we're just saying we're protected by the prana and the air, that, that is, I'm, I know the whole story Pranjana is an allegory, but saying that the prana is protecting our body and mind, especially during sleep, is not just allegorical. It is a physiological fact. For example, if one has pain, physical pain, if one has a lot of anxiety, one of the ways to stop that is to do slow, deliberate breathing. Now, the reason that works is that slow, deliberate breathing signals to the mind that we are safe. When we are in danger, then the breathing accelerates so we can get as much oxygen as possible in a short amount of time. We take very shallow upper chest breaths when our mind decides that we are in danger. And we take deep abdominal breaths when our mind decides that we are safe. So we can go about calming our body and mind through the mind to calm the mind and it will calm the body or we can also calm the body and it will calm the mind. So by breathing very deeply, then the whole, the physical body and the mind calm down. Of course, that is the idea of the pranayam in the Astanga Yoga system, that in order to meditate, you have to have a peaceful mind. Meditation makes your mind peaceful, but you have to have a peaceful mind to meditate. Just like chanting the Gayatri Mantra brings us to Sutta Sattva. But if you're not at least in Sattva, you actually can't even chant the Gayatri Mantras. And so putting the, changing the breathing changes the mind and it, it, it can be very dramatic I mean, some breathing techniques like this are taught you know, even in the military and police officers 
that if they want to calm down their body and mind, how they can do very slow, counted and deliberate breathing. It's quite fascinating how there's some acknowledgement that this prana and the breath and the air have a protective nature over the body and mind, even from a strictly medical uh, point of view. So let's look at how this air is Krishna. So one of the most significant aspects of air is how subtle it is. It's all around us, and there's something called air pressure. So the air is pushing on our body. There's 15 pounds of pressure on every square inch of our body. That's about uh, a kilogram for every square centimeter. So think about that. Think about how much 15 pounds weighs. And if you were putting 15 pounds on every little square, it would be quite heavy. (laughs) Uh, But we're we're not aware of it. We don't feel like there's something pressing on us all the time. We're also not usually aware of our breathing. right? We, We breathe without being consciously aware of it. I mean, that's another technique of meditation, is to become consciously aware of the breath, even just the natural breath, even without changing the breathing pattern, just to put your awareness onto the breath. But generally, the air is moving in and out of our lungs, in and out of our nose and mouth, and moving then the oxygen through our bloodstream with no awareness on our part at all. And the only way that we're aware of air is through its effects. You know, we, we, if we look around, I only see air if it's moving something. So right now there's no wind outside. So I don't, I'm not aware that it's here. I'm breathing it. It's pressing on me. But I don't see it. I only see it if it moves something. Yes? When it moves branches, or if it moves straw, or if it's carrying water vapor up in the air, or sometimes when it's carrying smoke... Right, you light some incense and you can see then the movements of the earth. It, it's fascinating, isn't it? So right now, if we look around our room, there's actually currents of air in our room, but we can't see them. But if we were to light some incense, then we would see the smoke swirling in, the, in these currents of air. Right? And Krishna is subtle like that. Right? We, we're not aware of him. He's all around us. We were just the other day giving a class on Prahlad Maharaj and Nisingadev where Harindi uh, Kashipu asks Prahlad, you know, you say your God is everywhere, but I don't see him. So it's like that. Krishna's everywhere like the air, but we don't see him. He's only visible by his effects. You know, we can see, oh, there's a beautifully made flower. Or the pl- we can predict where the planets are going to move. There's natural laws we can base our mathematics on, um, but but we don't we don't see him. Uh, and not only is he very subtle and unseen like the air, but it's interesting that air can move things that appear to be much more substantial. You know, the air is so subtle, but when you have a wind storm, a hurricane, cyclone, a tornado it can throw buildings around. I mean, here's this thing that's, that's basically invisible, practically imperceptible, out of our awareness, and it's throwing around buildings, and it's throwing around cars, 
it can push little bits of wood into metal. And Krishna's the same way. Again, we don't perceive him. But he can move and shape and change and he can scatter everything that we can perceive. Right, so we might say with today's verse, you know, how does this prana protect me? It's, it's subtle. I'm, I'm hardly aware of it. But this subtle air is very powerful. It actually has great force, great strength. Right? We can think about how Krishna's name carried in the air. It can tear apart our steel-framed heart. Like some gust of air can tear apart a car. So Krishna's name can dismantle our steel-framed heart. It can turn our our lust and anger into love. Now Krishna also gives the example that the air carries different impressions. You know, Prabhupada's saying today in the purport how we're moving from one body to another. We're transmigrating, we're reincarnating on this prana. The air is carrying us, the prana, the life force is carrying us. And Krishna talks about the Bhagavad Gita, how the air is carrying aromas. When you get off the plane in Hawaii, you immediately smell the flowers in Hawaii, isn't it? When I would get off the plane in India, I would always smell fires. I would smell the smoke of of wood and, and cow dung burning, right? Or we have a, you know, you may have a place that it smells bad, a, a landfill or a sewer or something. So you go through a flower garden, you smell the flowers, you can smell the smoke, you smell the sewer. So all these are being carried, although the air is not affected. It's just carrying them without being affected. So in the same way, Krishna says that he's not affected. He says he's in the heart and he can understand our desires just by being close to us. So the way that the life air carries us from one body to another is it, it, it carries our desires, it carries our impressions. Right? But it's neutral. Krishna is also neutral. So you know, if we act in an evil way, we go to the lower planets. If we act in a greater way, he carries us to the higher planets. And he's carrying us from one body to another. So... He's protecting us in this prana and he's also taking us where we desire. And of all of the things we depend on, as explained here, is mostly the air. That's our main protector, this prana and the air. So we have other bodily needs, right? Uh, we all need food, but we can go for a long time without food. We can go, you know, 20, 30, 40 days without eating. Uh, people go between 3 to 10 days without water. Uh, We can go about 20 or 30 minutes without the proper temperature, depending on how hot or how cold it is. But people have survived in very cold, very hot situations for a short amount of time. But we can't survive without air very long at all, you know, 5, 10 minutes, maybe 10 minutes maximum. We can survive without air. And everything else has no value if there's there's no air, right? There's, There's no question of meeting our our higher level needs, our spiritual needs, our social, intellectual, emotional needs if we don't have air. So I give the example, let's say we have a really good meal, all of our favorite food, and we have the company of our favorite people, we're with our our dearest friends, right? Maybe even, you know, somebody is, there's some entertainment, there's singers and dancers and everything, but if there's no air, (laughs) then, then there's no 
enjoyment and uh, without without the prana there's nothing as soon as the prana leaves the body then the body is is dead so our relationship with krishna is like that it's like this air so if we don't have a deliberate conscious relationship with krishna then nothing else has any value prabhu talks about all of the zeros uh, and you know here the intelligence lady She's talking about how she has the senses and she has the actions of the senses, her male friends, her female friends. But what is the point of them without Krishna? What is the point of anything? And uh, we see that when people try to have a successful material life without Krishna, they're not satisfied. People can be very rich, they can be very famous, they can be very powerful and very beautiful. But if they don't have Krishna, they're not happy. Like, how are we going to be happy without air? You know, in some part of the world where it's very the air is very polluted, then you can't really enjoy anything else, right? Nothing else has any meaning. And of course, because Krishna is complete, when we have a relationship with Him, then we're completely satisfied. Then all of our other needs are satisfied, and then we deal with the world from a position of satisfaction and joy. Right? So, of course, Krishna says. Uh, that he joins with the incoming and outgoing air to digest our food. So this is actually quite uh, interesting. So when we eat, if you know the science of when we eat, so when we eat, right, we chew our food in the mouth, and then that air, the food, the chewed up food, it it's, forms little balls, I forget what they're called, and they have to be pushed down through our esophagus into our stomach. So we have the windpipe in the esophagus. And when we swallow, there is a little door in the back of our mouth that shuts off the windpipe so that none of the food will go into the windpipe. That it, and as soon as we finish swallowing, it opens up again so we can breathe. And then the food has to move down, down the esophagus into the stomach. And then, of course, there's all this... Uh, acid in the stomach that further digests the food and there's little valves there's a little valve between the esophagus and the stomach that's supposed that valve is supposed to be below the diaphragm uh, in me it's not which is the problem it's called a hiatal hernia so it's supposed to be below the diaphragm so to keep any of the stomach acid from going up into the esophagus and then there's another little valve so there's this valve going into the stomach to keep any of the stomach acid from going up, and then there's a little valve going out of the stomach, and then that opens up, and this, you know, the food starts to be digested in the mouth, and it's more digested in the stomach, then it moves into the small intestine where it's further digested, and it has to move through this very, very long small intestine, which is full of blood vessels, and the, the blood picks up the nutrients the proteins, the carbohydrates, and the sugars, and the vitamins, and minerals, and so forth. And it picks it up from the small intestine, and then it carries it all over the body. And by the time the food is completely moved through the small intestine, then everything has been, all the nutrition has been extracted. And then it moves, of course, through the large intestine, where it's put together, and uh, some of the water is removed. And then finally, of course, we evacuate the, the waste products, the stool. And then also the liquid portion of what we eat is also taken up by the blood. So the blood is, is liquid plasma, and then it's picking up the nutrition, which is carried in the plasma and by the, the cells. 
And then there's also liquid waste, which is, has to move uh, through our kidneys to get filtered. The liver also is doing filtering the blood, so the liver is filtering the blood. And then we have chemicals moving in from the gallbladder and from the spleen. And then the liquid waste, of course, then is held in our bladder and we urinate it. And all of this requires movement. And then, of course, to digest food, we need oxygen because it's a fire digestion, which needs oxygen. So the air that we breathe into our lungs, that oxygen is picked up by the red blood cells. They carry that oxygen to the stomach for its digestive power, to the small intestine for its digestive power, and they carry then also uh, the oxygen to each of the cells in the body for their individual digestion of the materials. It's a very, very complicated machine, and I've explained it in an extremely simplistic way. But there's all this movement. There's the movement of the air going into the lungs, which is for digestion, and then there's the movement of the food, and the food in its various digested parts, liquids and solids, with all, and it's, it's, it's all moving all over the body all the time. And so these are the airs. These are the pranas. And so we, Krishna is the air, but he also joins with the air, he says, uh, to move everything along. You know, it's like with the, um, the battle on the ocean of milk where Krishna is, is helping the demigods pull the mountain, right? He's joining with the demigods to pull the mountain. And then he also gets on top of the mountain to help everything move. And he gets under the mountain. So he's under the mountain. He's on top of the mountain. And he's pulling on the suki. So Krishna himself, Krishna himself, I mean, it, it's something like, you know, you have a very young child who's trying to do something, and so you help them, you know, you put your hand over their hand, or you're, you're helping them with what they're doing, they're mixing the batter, and you're holding the thing, and you're mixing it with them. So Krishna is both the air itself, and he's helping this different prana to move this digestion through in the body. And this is something we should actually meditate on when we're eating. This is one of the main ways that this snake, this prana, is protecting our gross and subtle body is through our digestive process. Having good digestion, we were saying how breathing affects the state of the mind. So good digestion also affects the state of the mind. What we eat has a direct effect upon our consciousness. Krishna talks about food and the modes of nature. But it's not just... What we put into our mouth is what we digest, what we actually assimilate. And that's being done through Krishna as the air, protecting our body and mind. And then we can also think how on a, on a higher level, perhaps, we could say that Krishna is delivering yoga shame of aham yaham. He's delivering everything that we need. He supplies all of our necessities. Of course, he supplies the necessities to everyone. But particularly for his devotees, he's giving the devotees everything they need, both materially and spiritually. Uh, just like he's moving all the nutrition around in our body. And we can also meditate on air. Our acharyas talk about how the air is a dance teacher. Now, of course, part of the reason that we can move our bodies and part of the reasons we can move mentally is, is the movements of prana. Prana allows for the different parts of our body to move. Okay? And this wind, this air, is compared by our acharyas, by Krishna Das Kaviraj, in Govinda Lilamrita, by Kavi Karnapur, particularly in Ananda Vrindavan Champu. It talks about how 
the wind is a dance teacher, and the various uh, elements of nature are the students, the trees, the leaves, the flowers, they're all the students, and they're all being trained to dance by the air. And we can also say that the air is not only a dance teacher, but the air is an artist. So there are many rocks that have been made into works of art by the blowing of the wind. So by the action of water and by the action of wind. And many times we'll see also on the water itself that the air is making the water dance. Right? The air is, is the combination of light and air will make it look like there's, there's many, many diamonds dancing on the water or there's many boats like with little lights looks like that they're dancing on the water. And we see the wind also moves sand to make many patterns and works of art in the sand. And so this action of the air to allow movement and beauty and artwork can allow us to meditate on Krishna, who's the supreme artist and the supreme dancer. Right? That he not only does he dance, but he also induces others to dance. As Srila Prabhupada writes in Krishna book in regard to the Ras dance, how the whole world is full of Krishna's singing. And then he says that Krishna wants us to dance with him. He doesn't want us to dance independently or to dance with anyone else. So we read that all of the movements of all of the residents of the spiritual world are so graceful that they look like dancing. Uh, Even when they're not dancing, they look like dancing. So imagine when they're intentionally dancing, what their dancing looks like. We see incredible dancers on this earth planet that just astound us with their grace and beauty. Uh, But that's nothing compared to the dancers on the higher planets, what to speak of the dancing in the spiritual world. So Krishna likes to dance. Even his walking is like dancing, and he likes to dance. And he wants all of us to be dancing with him. He likes to dress up as if he's a dancing actor about to go on a stage. He's often compared like that. And Krishna's dancing is more graceful, more soothing, more complex, more exciting, more intricate than the swirling waves of a stream whipped by the wind or by the the movements of the prana within our own body that allow us to move. And of course, Krishna has a lot of pastimes with the air, right? He's, uh, he's riding on the air on Garuda, and uh, Garuda's wings are singing the Vedas, yes? And he breathes, Krishna breathes out the Vedas, the Hayagriva incarnation, breathes out the sweet songs of the Vedas. And of course, there's Krishna's flute, that Krishna is breathing through his flute, his own intimate companion. Yes. So in this way, we can say how our, when we meditate on this prana as the real, um, the real protector, ultimately that prana is Krishna. Ultimately our protector is Krishna. Ultimately our protector is not uh, just some ordinary prana, <laughs> oh, like that, uh, but it's it's actually Krishna. And we can think about how lovely it is, how how wonderful it is, the way that Krishna protects us, how he protects us without our even noticing. You know, it makes me think about how when I was learning how to ride a bicycle. My father was holding on to the back of the bicycle 
but he was trying to hold on in a way that I wasn't very aware of him so that I wouldn't feel bad <laughs> that my father is helping me. So Krishna comes in the form of this prana, comes in the form of the life air, uh, in such a way that we're hardly even aware that he's there. And Prabhupada's adding this to the today's translation. So much I know, I do not know anything beyond this. So most materialistic persons are in this category. Actually, most materialistic persons are not even as knowledgeable as this lady. So this lady is aware that the snake, which is the life air, Naga, Naga, the life air is protecting her body and mind. But I'd say that most people, I think this is accurate, that most people on the earth right now have no idea <laughs> that their, their prana is, is protecting them. They're just kind of going through life almost like an animal, really. I mean, even though people have philosophy and, you know, they discuss politics and they discuss philosophy and, and social issues and so many things, that most people both seem to go through life like an animal without really knowing what they're doing, who they are. And, and this is kind of a theme in this section of Paranjana, that the material intelligence, which is the, the metaphor of this lady, the material intelligence... She doesn't know what's going on. She doesn't know who she is. She doesn't know how she got there. She just doesn't really know anything about how things are working. And she certainly doesn't know about God. So when we're dictated to by material intelligence, we're, we're foolish. We're, it's actually ignorance instead of vidya. It's, it's avidya. It's not real booty. It's not real intelligence. It's not real meda. It's ignorance. So we should be intelligent. We should become conscious. We should become aware of how really Krishna is there, how I'm the soul. I'm not this body. I'm not this mind. I'm carried. I'm protected. I'm carried. I'm in the presence of the Lord. But these things are not me. And when we have that consciousness, that awareness, then we're not so adversely affected by the fragility, by how fragile our body and mind are. I'm not sure what the word is. But we're not, we're not so much affected by it. The fact that the body is fragile, the fact that the body is fragile, doesn't scare us so much if we're aware that I'm the soul and I have nothing to do with these. And, and I'm, I'm eternal. And the only thing we really need protection from is forgetting Krishna and falling into Maya. And then we very nicely lean on this uh, protective dance teacher of the air, that's Krishna, to keep us always in thoughts of him. So we have a little bit of time if anybody has any questions or comments. I have a question. Just a quick uh, clarification question. When you were speaking about the weight... It's constantly upon our body. Are you speaking of gravity? No, air pressure. Um, I thought the air pressure is kind of neutral, like at sea level. Um, well, there's less air pressure as we go away from the earth because the air gets thinner. But there's air pressure. Mm. Mm. Okay. 
uh, I had two questions. Okay. Uh, number one is, uh, you know, I was always curious about the staff of Hermes, you know, for health. It's got this snake oh. tangling going up, and it really looks like Eden Dipinda uh, crossing the different chakras, and then it's got the wings at the top. Uh, looks like the Brahma Rendra. That first question: Do you know anything about this? Is there any relations? I mean, I it certainly find? seems like there could be, but that's not. I haven't researched that at all, so I, I don't know. But certainly there okay. could be. I haven't seen a reference, but boy, it sure looks like it. It sure does. I mean, it certainly seems that seems very likely. Okay. The other question I had is uh, in the report: the way she looked. Puts us is that when the living entity gives up the material body, the body of course still remains intact and is carried to another material body. That is called transmigration. So I always assume that uh, when the prana uh, is expired, uh, you know, we go with our subtle body, but it looks like we're talking about the vital force is another subtle thing yes. that goes with the mind and the intelligence. Yes. So it simply leaves the body, but it doesn't. It, it still stays with the soul. The it's the, yes, the protector. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, I didn't know that. Well, isn't it nice that we always learn new things when we read Shastra? There's a list of eight items, earth, water, fire, mind, intelligence, false ego. That, that's not part of that list. Well, that's interesting that you say there. I mean, it's air. It's a kind of air. There's a book, I haven't read it, but it was I, the title intrigued me. It was about a man who was dying of... Uh, something I don't know what he, was, what he was dying of. Anyway, he recovered, and the the title of his book is "When Breath Becomes Air." As I said, I haven't read it. I have no intention of reading it, but I thought that was just really interesting. You know, when breath becomes air, that it's air, but when it's when it's in me, it's breath. So there is some kind of prana, some kind of vital force that Prabhupada said is eating the air. Yes. Isn't, the, isn't that the way he put it? He said that um, the snake lives by eating the air that passes within the body. So it makes it sound like it's a different element. It's like a, a, a life force or so it's equated. It, it's just it eats air but it is air. Air eating itself? I don't know. You'd probably have to ask a very expert yogi for the answer to that question. Well, thank you. Sorry. I mean, I guess I, I could have taken time to ask some expert yogis before the class, but I didn't. I have a question. Yes. I'm curious about the, the karmic implications of 
of losing one's sanity and, and subsequent Vaishnava Bharat that I see sometimes with mm. devotees who, who are unstable in the mind where they were previously in very good standing, but you know, then they commit some offenses after becoming mentally unstable, and, and it doesn't seem to be their fault entirely. It seems like it's, it's caused by um, their, their lack of discretion that they don't really have much control over. So I'm just curious how that manifests in terms of well, it's interesting. The um, the Bhagavatam in the story of the hellish planets, the description to hellish planet describes that punishment is less for people who are mentally unstable, and this is true in every culture of the world. So, in every culture of the world, in every human society, people who are mentally ill are not held either as responsible or even not responsible at all for crimes. That's that's the way it is everywhere. Uh, so that's true no matter what crime kind of crime it is. That the more that a person is not able to have control over their mind, the less that they're held accountable for what they do. Now they may need to be removed from other human beings because they may be dangerous. There's one of our devotees who um, now he's retired, but he used to work as a medical doctor in a high security prison for the criminally insane. You know, so people may have to be removed from society if they're very dangerous. As far as offenses, it's quite interesting. I've seen that offenses causes mental derangement. So you're talking about mental derangement that causes offenses, but I've also seen offenses cause mental derangement. I've, I've seen it many times. That if people commit Vaishnava Parad repeatedly over a period of time, that they become mentally unstable, even if they weren't so much before. I, I've definitely seen it. It, it, it seems to be that Vaishnava Parad seems to be something that destabilizes people. I mean, I would I would suggest that cruelty in general destabilizes people. I mean, I would I just posted an article on social media yesterday, the day before, about scientists who conduct experiments on animals. You know, and there's I mean, even Srila Prabhupada says that there's a need to have experimenting on animals for medical purposes. We there's no way we could eliminate all animal experimentation for medical purposes. But the extent to which they do this and the cruelty to which they do this in modern society is so much that the researchers who, who do this, all of them have mental problems. All of them. I mean, it was interviewing this one woman who said that she's estimated that she's killed over 300,000 lab animals. And many times she has to kill them one at a time. You know, the experiments are over and then they have, you know, a hundred rats. And she goes in and kills each one of them. Yes, her, her killing, she was describing her killing technique. And it makes people crazy. And it's the same with people who work in slaughterhouses. The vast majority of them, especially the ones on the killing floor where they're directly killing the animals, they become mentally unstable. So we don't seem to be, and, and it happens in war. 
that's what PTSD is or shell shock that people who are engaged in cruelty or exposed to cruelty I mean if you're, if you're a real ksatria and you're fighting a righteous war that won't happen but if you're not if you don't have the ksatria courage and you're fighting an unrighteous war or you have the ksatria courage and you're fighting an unrighteous war it can destabilize the mind so I would understand that Vaishnavaparada is in the same kind of category that if we're cruel to others whether we're cruel to others physically or mentally or emotionally or sexually or however if we're cruel to others our own mind becomes destabilized it's not we're not supposed to do that and our our own makeup can't handle it it, it, it badly affects us I've also noticed that lying is like the first step to insanity because the sinful reaction plus you're denying reality which is uh, uh, kind of the way you describe psychosis is you you can't tell reality anymore. Mm -hmm. So if you start changing it all the time the way you think you'd like it to be because you know we know that earth mother earth really dislikes uh that and it's a great offense and thou shalt not bear false witness it's one of the big ten and so it seems like that's the first step uh, one of the first steps to uh becoming crazy yeah well also cruelty almost always involves some kind of cognitive dissonance where you're you're being cruel but you're trying to rationalize your cruelty in some way you're lying about what you're actually doing. So yeah, that it does it does destabilize people. Definitely. Alright, thank you very much. Shil Prabhupada Ki Jai. Thank you very much. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.